Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have the return of Jared Murphy. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's always and, a good time. And he is the author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and uh, Our Lost History and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Wait, okay, I'm going to fix you on that one. Thanks. It's Not Aliens. <laughs> Yeah, here we go. And here comes the bumper. It's not aliens. Worse, it's us. Discovering our lost history by Jared Murphy. Chapter one. That's what you'll get in my audiobook eventually. <laughs> Are you going to narrate happening. it yourself? Yeah, because apparently, well, one, I, I started it for a more practical reason, but it turns out that people like to hear, I don't, I don't think I have a voice. I didn't think I had a voice for that at all, actually. I asked, I did some pre-recording. Everybody records, it appears in a couple, you know, particular softwares and I obtained that and did a a test and said, guys, you got to be brutal, you know, tell me if I should be doing this or not because I didn't think I had a voice that anybody would want to listen to for a full book. And it turns out that everyone's like, yeah, you should do it. And then when I looked a little more into it, I had no idea, but it turns out that a lot of people get kind of bummed out when they buy an audiobook and the author doesn't tell the story. I had no idea. I didn't know that either. I mean, look, if I, if, if um, Morgan Freeman is open for any charity work or just because he likes me, <laughs> I would have Morgan Freeman read my book. I mean, <laughs> you know, or, or, or Sam Elliott, you know, right. uh, oh man. Oh my gosh. They could go back and forth. Anyway, I, I, I can't, since that's off the table, I think. I will be recording. I am. I'm about. Uh, the problem is, you know, we're having a live conversation and it's going to be exactly what it is. But for the book, you got to go back and you got to edit and um, create a stamina and a, a, just there's things you don't notice until you're in your car listening to the audiobook that when you record an audiobook, you just got to go back and fix. So it's just been a little slow going. And I got some good people working with me on it, but I'm, I'm really hoping to have that out here soon. Definitely before Christmas. That's for sure. It's awesome. I've never actually listened to a whole audio book. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I read the old fashioned way. You know, I'm doing that with Asimov right now. I I've decided to reread the, uh, a lot of people think that the iRobot series and the Foundation series are separate, but actually they're not. There's about 12 books and they start at iRobot and, and do Caves of Steel. And then it goes into what a lot of people don't know are part of it is the galactic novels. So I'm in the middle of uh, rereading the stars like dust, which is the first and the three galactic novels, which are the primers to prelude to foundation into the foundation and earth portion of the same story that starts with iRobot and it's 12 books long I think and it's uh uh covers about 25,000 years in human history and I just decided to reread it so I have a 1980s uh print of the stars like dust and it's so cool to hold the book you know and just read off of a page than off a digital device but Mm -hmm. I can share an absolute terrifying secret for those who 
appreciate real books. Uh, name a book, pick a book that you would never want to read flipping on a phone. Uh, what, what, what would be your like worst nightmare for reading a book? Uh, on a phone, Lord of the Rings trilogy. You are so very close. A buddy of mine told me, and I, I wasn't on my radar because I, I was reading a lot of nonfiction. I was doing a lot of research. And a buddy of mine says, hey, have you ever heard of Game of Thrones? <laughs> Each of those books are like 1,400 pages, give or take. And uh, I watched the first two episodes of that show. And then a uh, little cliche, I put the show down and started reading the books. And of course, the books are better. And not that the show is not entertaining, but the, the books, the character development. And I found myself always busy and always on the run. And I really like to read actual physical books. So, which I guess is a good point because a lot of people don't know my book is not a small book, as you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. It's, more, it's more like a workbook. And I think that that's our history, right? Just having something big enough to really read, uh, uh, look at, and then be able to process and maybe like highlight and write some notes. But I was always on the road. And so the, before I knew it, I read three of the Game of Thrones novels uh, on my phone. If that's just the worst, uh, you know, now people know. I can tolerate uh, flipping because it feels like you're reading fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't do it on my phone. I do have a, a Kindle, uh, the, the, the white paper, paper white, whatever it's called. So I do a lot of reading on that. Yeah, it's something like a that. A paperweight? <laughs> paper white, I think it's called. I don't oh, know. Oh, okay. It's, it's something. I like thought that. you said paperweight. That, it, that's it, like... it, it's not like, uh, I have an iPad, but I don't read much on that because the battery dies too fast. Um, yeah, I, ha I have an iPad that lasts a really long time, but I, I theorize that it's because I refuse to do any system updates and it's like not the newest one. So it's, it's locked in time and it still functions. Yeah, mine's pretty old too. Uh -huh. So I, I, I don't know what it does. Sometimes it will, it, it feels like the battery just never dies. And then there are some days where, okay, I haven't done anything different, but now apparently I better plug it in because, you know, it's not going to make it. <laughs> and I, I don't know what the distinction is on it, but uh, not that we should digress further, but do you, have you been reading uh, anything else like hardcover or you um, know, paper? I had a guy on my show named Mark Ireland, and he sent me three of his books. And uh, one of the books was written by his father, um, Richard Ireland. And the book is on um, how to develop your psychic abilities. So I've been kind of reading that a little bit. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, uh, anything uh, you've learned so far about just the de developing them? Well, according to the book, everybody has it to some extent. Um, I mean, it, it seems like the foundation first is meditation, which is something I already do. Um, and then actually, you know, after that, you know, it, it's really just practice, you know, and, and not being afraid to, you have to let go of the idea of being wrong and learn to go with your intuition and to um, just kind of be present and listen to whatever the voices in your head or whatever, your thoughts. And, and that's basically it. 
Interesting. I, and I know that um, for the dialogues we've had that we've, we're going to conscious, just consciousness was going to be one of our concentration points. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't, this wasn't even something we were planning, but this is uh, I think exactly some of the chapters when getting into my book, part of trying to understand our ancient past. And, and for those that haven't heard, it's just that I had gone in and found mummies in Peru that were up to 9,000 years old called the Paracas. Uh, they were just, there's just mummified remains in Peru that are that old because of how arid the climate is, which is why the Nazca lines have lasted so long in Peru. It's just a very, there are areas in Peru that are drier than the driest deserts or Antarctica because there's just no rain. And I thought it'd be interesting to look at these mummies. And very quickly I found engineered soil called terra preta all over the earth. And that led me down a road of research that included how would a prior advanced ancient human society have functioned on the planet? And in looking at the ancient technologies, you can't help but look at consciousness and look at the actual gene that not just, oh, we used to be aliens, or that's, that's not even a question we can table. The real questions are, why are people like, I, I, we, and we have talked about Wim Hof and Stieg Severinsen, the people who are considered superhuman that have conscious control of their immune system. And that's just part of a layer of what appears more like dormant and or capabilities genetically within our consciousness that we've forgotten how to do, which include um, um, not just a meditation where like I'm angry or I'm stressed or I need to relax because I'm in yoga class, but a breathing system that allows you to take control of your immune system, your vagus nerve, your, uh, your ability to actually control whether you're hot or cold, inflamed, your inflammatory response, uh, slowing your heart. These are all mainstream, actually tested and proven abilities. Tibetan Tomo, uh, mm-hmm. however you want to pronounce it. I am not Tibetan, so I apologize for all those involved. <laughs> But that's an ability that is over approximately, you know, 3,000 years old. And Wim Hof comes along and says, hey, look, you know, if you do this breathing technique, you can literally get activated and connected uh, back into what is maybe an unconscious ability to not only have this conscious control, not even not a sensation, folks, of your spinal column or your organs, but there is something that happens when you do this breathing technique, which is a meditation where you don't have to be told to like imagine your problems on a sky cloud and, and be present right now. It's none of that. It's you start the breathing technique and you can sense nerve endings in your body, literally connecting, changing. There's sensations that uh, your head, your brain, uh, people describe it as tripping. People describe it as uh uh, out of body sometimes there's there's these things that are happening and it's part of a bigger picture of us reconnecting with what we have for a few I think the last few years we've called sometimes paranormal mm-hmm. or uh, I think it's been mislabeled as uh, other dimensionally and it's because 
uh, every neurosurgeon will hold up their pinky finger. You know, the basic example is say, you know, we know this little about the human brain and it's not just the brain, it's our DNA. Like we didn't, we didn't know that there was uh, a double helix, which is also, it's also a quad helix. And depending on how the cell or what cell is splitting or changing or repairing, there are different structures that none of it we're aware of, but all of it ties into consciousness because on one hand, we have this science we're rediscovering, but then at the same time, uh, we have a larger population than that's been on earth in a long time. And all of it ties in to these uh, weird abilities that, why is it that for 3000 years, Tibetan Tomo teaches a breathing technique? And this isn't an, anything about that uh, system, but it's it's a representation of a mystified human ability where for 3,000 years, you know, if you're a monk and you're in a temple and you're in this certain place, you could learn this technique, but it didn't go much further than that. But it was, it was something that showed real uh, abilities because these monks in practicing it have been heat signatured. Uh, there's even been some mainstream television on it where they too will sit at 20 below zero with a frozen, a frozen blanket on their back and they will heat themselves during this meditation, drying the blanket, and they will sit at, out, literally, you can see their breath. They're sitting in what should be uh, crippling hypothermia weather, and they're controlling their body heat, and they're also thawing a frozen blanket. And that is really cool, but it wasn't a system that left itself. It it's has stayed a mystified technique that that practice of that of the tibetan the tibetan version had within the last 38 ish years i don't know the complete history on it but that technique did leave it did come to california it went around the world a little bit in in modern times as a technique to learn but it's people like uh these other superhumans like wim hof and steve severinsen and uh other people in movement like Ido Portal and Erwin LaCour in the MoveNet world. These are all people that are connecting the dots and sharing it with a greater world that isn't in a secret place, in a secret temple that's being hoarded for 3,000 years and it doesn't actually help develop humankind because it's not everyone practicing. And when everyone practices these techniques, we're all connecting a little bit. There's just just too many examples of people connecting to what you could call uh, some people call it an astral plane. Some people call it a uh, uh, their second sight, which is a little different, but it's a known thing that some people have had for years. Or it's uh, group dreaming or group shared memories or that human consciousness. There is a idea now that is present amongst us that. There is something beyond us personally, and this is what's been so fascinating now for all of us to chat about. If I ever take a breath, well, yeah, I, I mean, I mean that this is a, this is the topic that really drives me, you know, to do the podcast and, and to do everything that you know, to interview all the people I, look, I, I talk to. Like some of the people, some people will consider some of my episodes like really way out there, but I, I, I think you know. Um, if you're ever looking for a common denominator, it always goes back for me to consciousness 
and um and, and some of these things like like what we call supernatural or psychic I, I agree with you. They're, they're, they're actually not that at all. They're, 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 they're latent abilities that we've always had that, for whatever reason, have been turned off. And some of us are able to do that. And also, when you talk about the breathing, um, I relate to that. I, my first, one of the first practice, spiritual practices, or, or whatever you want to call it, that I practiced was uh, Kundalini Yoga. And... Uh, and it was, you know, with, with a real Kundalini yoga guy and stuff like that. And, and the, most of his focus was on breathing. Like, you could, like, cover a nostril and breathe real fast, you know, using your diaphragm and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and you really could feel the difference, you know. Um, and basically, I, I, I guess um, I, they, they call it prana, I believe. You know, like the in the air, and we're able to they use that prana and channel it, and then use that to control. You know, you know things like our our um, heartbeat or body temperature and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it it's so interesting because they're not uh, until recently. It's been a separation. There wasn't a mainstream academic acknowledgement there was oh well there's this fascinating symptom or well we see that there's a reaction and then on the ritualistic side just like any other religion there's these techniques that used to be day-to-day everyday fully 100 percent conscious controlled uh totally integrated with the planet sort of people likely with specialized genes that are not natural and are developed just like we're saying these large megalithic structures that could control earthquake reaction that are, you know, that are around or surrounded by engineered, ancient engineered soil. That's not only the best growing soil on earth, but soil that could have piezoelectric properties that had, uh, you know, an ability to filter heavy metals, carbon dioxide. And these aren't, you know, and, this is a society that would have had an ability instead of using an external device that we call technology right mm-hmm. now. And this is where it gets so blurred how we, we have to jump in a conversation and consciousness between what, what we know of as technology and what we look at. And even now with all of our technology, we'll look at and go, well, that's the natural world. And, the, and everyone's like, okay, well, the natural world, you know, it's suffering and it's changing. And, it, and one of the things that is often missed is that, uh, 5,000 or so species of creatures are still found every year, give or take. And that means animals, birds, frogs, a lot of it are bacterias and funguses that we didn't even have a paradigm existed. And so these creatures and uh, animals and bacteria that are all being found in the last 40 years represent a fraction of everything living on earth. But as a whole, our identification of the earth and what we see it's external yet we have this collective human consciousness quantum level whatever there are so many different labels or paranormal what it really appears more to be is that in as the hindu vedas as it in vedic literature it goes back much longer than the bible as to uh, at this point it's becoming 
Western common knowledge based on a lot of TV shows and a lot of us talking and us doing this research that there is indications that the gods, at least from the mystification of these, of these Hindu religious scripts show that there were flying saucers or flying, flying vehicles. And, and they may have described it as a chariot, but it's a flying vehicle, nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. uh, technology that appears to have been in histories that are millions of years past. And then we have books like Michael Cremo's Forbidden Archaeology, where yet again, we have uh, solid examples of paleoanthropological finds of anatomically correct humans, tools, things that show that the history that we tell ourselves, it's not lineal. So one of the first problems we have about breaking into this consciousness, where I guess this long point is that we look at our history and say, well, okay, it's not everybody was banging rocks and in loincloths 50,000 years ago, but it also isn't that we rose beyond that, way beyond where we are now. And actually, Nelly, we're engineering, which we are engineering animals, cloning, manipulating DNA, creating custom babies as we speak. This is a thing now. And 3D printers printing hearts and livers and ears. We can do all that now, let alone the, the devices we're printing off of a printer. We're talking about a society that based on all the evidences being found and genetic clues that are left inside of us and inside mummies like the Paracas and other elongated skulled and various, whether it's Denisovan or Neanderthal, you name it, there's a number of finds that show that these are people who developed to the point where they could look at a tree, look at not only engineering the soil, but what would a fully active pineal gland look like within the mind where it has ocular nerves and whether or not it was specifically that or the ability to directly call and contact a human being or sense what they feel. And this is where it gets really exciting. We, in our understanding of things through psychology and even back to the Roman times, even back to Aristotle, they were aware of something called synesthesia. And this is something I talk about in the book. And this is uh, where you might hear, like if somebody said a number to you, you might see a color, you might see Mm -hmm. a color and you might smell something. And there's, those are just not just, they're not just specific examples, but they're how that's in your brain and what they estimate today. Now, Carl Jung was looking at it. Uh, the very first modern psychologists or psychiatrists, they were looking at these abilities and it's credited to 22 to 25% ish of the population. But again, is it that it was a random spriting of things within the genome and accidental or at 10 to 15% conscious in, in kind of a computer safe mode, is something like synesthesia really part of a greater human ability where you would never need or recognize a cell phone in this greater developed society? You would, through a connection directly, either mind to mind or through the earth or through assisted uh, kind of like conscious telephone poles, right. uh, you, you would be connected not only to each other in thought in, in a in a dialogue, but sensations, physical sensations, which is what synesthesia also because it affects it, it also has the abilities to do. Some of the techniques are you could be watching a play and you could actually when a person when you see someone touch someone, you would be able to feel it. 
And that's part of one of the abilities or to see a master canvas in front of your mind. And you could actually have dimensional synesthesia where you hear a number, for instance, like five, four, three, two, one. And the five number is far away, but you can see it. It is real. It is in your mind's eye, but it is at a distance. And as it, as you get down to one, the one is in a line directly in front of your mind. There's a lot of different ways that this is explained. And this is a, our idea of, again, science, looking at an ability that is part of these superhuman uh, reactivations that isn't just a I think a deficiency, like synesthesia is not a, hey, we're sorry you have this ability. It's not normal. I think the opposite's true. It's like, we're sorry you haven't been able to reactivate your ability or you have a sense or you've gotten an echo of it maybe in a past experience. But these abilities, I think, are tied to this ancient lost society that developed plants, animals, and terraformed the earth to work more in continuity with just a life cycle that included, yes, there were animals and bugs and things like that. But we always think that there's some book out there uh, that the earth lost the manual that said, you know, I've said it before. Okay, well, we need 50,000 mastodons, 8 billion mosquitoes, and this is how many trees. You know, there, mm -hmm. there's been no playbook on that. And so a lot of people are worried or I think get distracted by that idea of, well, the earth is changing. Well, it is, but I don't think there's a, you know, in 4 billion years, what, what's, the perfect, uh, what's the perfect amount of lava flows and large pteranodon flying swamps you want? Right. So, so with that, you know, I just three questions come to mind. I don't know if they're even related, but I'm going to say them before I forget them. Uh, one with the pineal gland. Uh, one of the things that, that I've been reading and, and actually trying to do is decalcify it. You know, um, like what, like what, some of those things are simple, like visualization and stuff like that, that, that you could do, but also like there's like dietary things that I've read that could be done, like, uh, eating like a lot of pineapples, um, to, to try to decalcify. Cause one of the problems is that, that it, it's, it's coated with this calcium and fluoride, um, that that's in our water. And, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and, and, that, and that sort of leads to like the, into a whole um, conspiracy type of thing of like, like why would they want us to, 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 you know, keep those abilities latent by calcifying the pineal gland. Um, the other thing that I was thinking is um, when you talk about like the engineering of soil and, and you know, building these uh, structures, um, that, that maybe the, rather than using machines, they use consciousness. Oh yeah. And, and that's, yeah, totally right. And I think that's one of the reasons I, yeah, I know in my bios, it talks about self-experimentation and in learning about consciousness with water, you know, a lot of people have or haven't heard of Dr. Emoto and the idea of your intense it doesn't matter the language, it matters your intent towards the water, that the water actually mutates based on your anger, frustration, happiness, joy, love, that labeling a water with words or uh, intent as you stare at it, that it's almost as if exactly as in prayer that you pray and 
those good feelings are transferred into and that's uh, that's definitely a hindu thing also about the love you prepare michael cremo and i were talking about that just a, a few days ago about the consciousness that you bring into food preparation that it's the same thing that maybe in that conspiratorial theory that there is a whether it's a a secret organization or whether it's a a desire to cloak the truth that by blocking by giving people dirty water or unconscious water or water that just you know gets pressed through a very dirty old rusty pipe that most people have because just by sheer lack of maintenance there's no way to uh, most cities including where i am have piping that go back to when it was founded i mean there are actual wood uh, a lot of people don't know that uh some of the first water pipes were made out of wood hollowed out logs uh from seattle to minnesota to the coast that th those were the first water pipes and when we think about having beautiful, pristine pool water at, at any pool, in, whether it's a backyard or at a Y, the reality is that that's not what our cisterns look like. The large city aquif uh, the reservoirs that are holding our water are not actually, uh, not to put anybody on the alarm, they're, they're not exactly clean. And it's hugely different. We have one aquifer that has been tapped that they guesstimate between 35 and 150,000 years old in filtration. This aquifer runs in part of the Twin City metropolitan area in, in Minnesota and this aquifer is free. You can, they have it tapped and 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which I also find a bit of a conspiracy is that why are they pumping 24 hours a day, seven days a week, fresh water into a stream? Like, why would you do that? Why, why isn't it why isn't it being pumped free? And then why aren't they also using it? Because this, this water is straight from the ground with a high mineral content. Basically, it has an electromagnetic properties. This water has high nutritional value. Distilled water, for instance, uh, there's a, a distinction. Mainstream science, it's well proven that you can drink a distilled water and the compounds will actually pull minerals from your body. You're supposed to drink spring water. You're supposed to drink, uh, in quotes, healthy water. But the water we get from treatment plants from a city, they're dead. It's basically low mineral, low ionization, low. Uh, it's been filtered. It has been bleached and chlorined. And essentially, in the, in the world of consciousness and Dr. Emoto, it's water that if you freeze it, he was coming up with these terrific slides of water that looked like melted, yellow, melted, dead, burned skin. And, it, and then if you had a positive thought, you could take water that had no personality to it. And whether it's happy, joy, love, you, et cetera, that when they would freeze and look at the water droplets frozen, that it would have a beautiful crystalline effect. And then they transferred that to a rice experiment, which has been repeated by some incredibly skeptical people online and found that it works, that you could take three jars of rice and put a label of love, I hate you, and one where you ignore it. And for 30 days, the rice challenge that many people have tried, irrelevant to their interest in consciousness or water or healthy food and eating or uh, faith of any kind or meditation, 
they, the rice experiment ends after about 30 days where if your intent and your love towards the, the watered rice that was dry rice that has usually sweetly fermented, uh, the rice that you've ignored and the rice that on an active daily basis, you just say you hate it or worse, tends to become black and nasty molded uh, rice. And so it's not too far-fetched from other naturalists like Victor Schauberger, which we could get into in a minute. But this is examples of consciousness, your intent towards what you eat, what you put in your body. And some people, uh, this is where that conspiracy thing comes back up. So like people have different faiths and were those faiths created to help give people some basic elements in what is healthy. And when you pray over food, you're loving over the food. So is it the act of who or what you're praying to, or is it the fact of your intent, like the intent of positivity or love over the water? And so what get, makes it healthy? And yes, if you can get to an aquifer and get water that's been filtered for over 30,000 years and it's recollected the earth's energies, and mineral content in a way that feeds your body, it then has to be mixed with how you create a mindset in whether it's consciousness for not just having a positive attitude, but taking one of these breathing techniques, like you're saying with your, with your program, which are you still on? Are you still doing that? No, I still don't do that one. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, that's sorry. I thought I'd ask quick because (laughs) Because maybe, did you move on to a different one? Um, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, like now, I, I, I kind of mix different practices now, honestly. I kind of do whatever I feel like needs to be done. I, I, because I, I, I think if you do one particular practice too much, it, it stops becoming beneficial. Just like working one muscle over and over again. Um, so I, I kind of just spread things out and, and I follow my intuition now. Yeah. And I, th- I, I think that that's why I keep bringing up some of these superhumans too, just for everybody out there to know it's, it's not that any one person has the right path. It has to be self-experimentation because I think we're connecting the dots again. And there is a collective consciousness, but how we all tie into it or how we all activate that personally and our awareness of that is going to be different for each person. That's what's exciting about this. There's not a one recipe for the same cake. And it's not even maybe the same cake. It might not even be a cake. It could be a completely different thing. I mean, just for the sake of the analogy. And I think that your water and your intent towards your cooking and your food and the sources of that food from whether it's in highly nutritious terra preta or chernozum like soils and or this consciousness during the preparation and the water itself and that mineral content i think they had in the in the ancient past this more highly advanced society had this all dialed in and those things that are getting crusted over like the pineal gland or just your arteries with everything else we treat food as a place of pleasure rather than how it reactivates our consciousness and our, and our body and its ability to connect with whether it's the earth. I know it sounds like super woo woo, but it's the ability to connect with each other, whether it's just 
conversationally or in sex, mm-hmm. uh, you know, intimacy, it's, it's comes at many different levels. And that's why it is important to say sex, but it's the intimacy of human connection is not random. And it's something that is part of that collective human consciousness where I think ultimately not trying to be half full here, but I think we actually care about each other and not because it's a, how do you do? Let me open the door for you. It's more of, there's a value in every human life that we can't quite get our hands on. It's not because, yeah, we're floating around in the universe and we might be the only we, we think we're the most conscious things around, but there's a value, I think, in every human life because I think somehow all of them do relate to each other on a level that right now we have muted. And every time we lose a human life, a human consciousness, even though there's birth, it's costing us something in our own actualization. We can recover and we readapt, but that's one, of the, one reason why I think all human life is valuable. You know, it's interesting, like, two, two things just came to my mind. Um, one is, you know, like, like being polite to people um, is one thing. But sometimes, like, when I'm at work and I'll see somebody, <laughs> you know, who's, you know, they just look broken or whatever. And I'll think, like, well, I'll try to imagine myself being that person and what got them there. You know, yeah, and, and try to feel what they feel, you know, rather than rather than judgment, trying to try to put myself in their shoes, basically, for a really old, simple thing, you know. And then when you talked about the water, um, and you know, having the effect on water, I can't, I can't help but think about the fountain of youth. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that, again. It's one of those we have this post apocalyptic or post flood or post diluvian, you know, this whole uh, diluvian antediluvian idea of the great flood. And we have mystified old, old, old technologies. And there's an overlap in for Westerners, for all of us in the West, because everything started in the Fertile Crescent and the Garden of Eden and, and the Greeks and the Romans and, you know, nothing happened in the East and, and in the, despite the Hindu literature being tens of thousands of years older than the Bible and forget that. Let's just look at the Western world. And in the past, we have things like Sumer, uh, the Sumerians, and we found kings lists. And just like in the Bible, where and in the opening we have Methuselah, and actually Jared, my dad, picked my name, and <laughs> that was the second oldest character in the Bible. Jared, Jared lived to be almost a thousand too. And th- these examples of long-lived people, and then the flood comes, and then suddenly the ages go from a thousand, nine hundred, six hundred, two hundred. You know, they they decrement down. And in Sumer, we found. Uh, a, a king's list. And it wasn't just found in one place. The kings, the Sumerian king's list is very famous because it lists eight kings and, and there are post-Diluvian. There, so there's Diluvian and anti-Diluvian. So pre-flood, post-flood king's list that says, uh, here are the kings before the flood. It actually says it on this document. And by document, it's written on stone. And it's important because 
eight of these kings ruled for like 36,000 years apiece down to like 21. And then after the flood, there's a series of kings that live for, uh, you know, a thousand years. And then one would live for 23 years. But the bottom line is, it's, it's like there's this giant, uh, genetically, there's memory where it's, the kings are being recorded, but it's showing approximately 260,000 years of history. And we're like, oh, well, they don't know what they're, you know, the standard academic models to say, well, they don't know what they were talking about. It was an allegory. It was just a story. They were just trying to make a point. But it's in the Bible also. So if you're looking at the Bible, it's like, okay, well, it's an allegory. You know, they didn't really live a thousand years. And then a lot of people would argue that, well, there's crossover between uh, Sumerian culture and the biblical stories. They, they match that the Genesis stories match the Sumerian and Gilgamesh is a character that's Sumerian. And then it got translated into biblical writings. And so you have these crossovers and then, so there's an ilk that will say, Hey, this is uh, really, these are the same stories, but it still doesn't address the fact that you have people living extreme, extreme ages to us. Whereas this might've been standard cycle life cycle because we had a giant tuned uh, frequency wave energy driven planet that went on the fritz either through war or catastrophe or a combo of both. And so here's the Sumerian Kings pre-flood ruling for 36,000 years apiece. And the assumption is, well, you know, they don't know what that is. And one thing I would point to, which really starts to get uncomfortable is a lot of what we found in Sumer include ziggurats, which are like, people like to think that it's an early pyramid, but it was also noticed that they were built on pie and they, and just like the great pyramid, they like to point out that, Oh, it's a coincidence. They just had no idea what pie was, but then we keep finding cuneiform tablets. And just so everybody's clear on this, it's not like we found Sumer and went, Oh, wow. You know, we're going to put this ancient society into the history books and we're going to learn everything about them. Well, the irony is, is one, we haven't dug everything up and two millions of cuneiform tablets have been found. And they are not all translated. And I got into a habit instead of reading the news for a while of just looking at cuneiform tablets. And there are many tablets that are, uh, you know, inventory lists, like their sales receipts, basically. Mm -hmm. And so you got not some very interesting stuff, but of the interesting things found, and I, and I do bring this up in my book, is you've got the Babylonian Plimpton tablet which is a cuneiform tablet that shows the Pythagorean theorem, basically trigonometry, almost a thousand years before Pythagoras. And so I don't know why, yet again, this is one of those indoctrination things where it's not, uh, for some reason, it would rock the boat to say, hey, look, Pythagoras didn't come up with this. The Sumerians were using the Pythagorean theorems and trigonometry, and it's like, well, they were also working with pi, which is an Egan value, which also has to do with waves and frequencies, which is pushing us back towards consciousness. Because when you think waves and frequencies, you got to think consciousness. Mm -hmm. So just we'll sideline that for a second. But then there was another tablet found in Sumer that had a spherical base 60 mass system, which means that when you're developing 
polygonal cymatic blocks for megalithic construction or stone spheres that when you bury them under metropolises, which is, by the way, this is proven science, when you're going to have this wave and frequency technology, you need to have math that is very accurate when it comes to three-dimensional and spherical shapes. And so we have these physical technologies that should not be needed or should exist to stack up a four-sided ziggurat, which is basically just a step pyramid to, you know, the theory is put the golden calf on. I'm being short with it, folks, but there's more to it. But, you know, there's a visual, the golden calf on the ziggurat. And uh, the idea that you would need a spherical base 60 math program, which is just very accurate locational dimensional math for a spherical object or something with really complex sides like polygonal construction. Uh, and then you would need to know pi for any reason. And you would need to know Pythagorean theorems for any reason. We don't, we, we keep every time any of us, we dialogue about the ancient past, all we can picture is, well, they could build really complex crap, but they were all in loincloths. You know, they didn't, Apparently, all their technology and brain power went into building really big and mathematically complex buildings. And it had nothing to do with consciousness. It had nothing to do with uh, that all the constructions pre-flood, during the time of the Sumerian kings list, these kings that ruled for tens of thousands of years may have been part of a society. But again, we're talking about a post-Diluvian flood myth story and it was so important to the Sumerians that they have it down in a king's list that they've kept in ancient antiquity being found all over not like one king's list it's just basically the same king's list all over reminding everyone that there was a pre-flood uh, kingdom that had these long lives but it is a post-flood story everything post-flood you have to raise an eyebrow and you have to know that it is a very creative, uh, adaptive, politically important, manipulated, uh, bent, twisted, and used uh, by any local government for a number of positive and or you could say nefarious and or negative or positive. You can say a lot of negative and positive about why religion why uh, the organization of the mythology or the mythos for that culture would be changed or would be valued. So we put on these glasses and we say, well, I know the entire story of the Anunnaki. I know the entire story of Sumer. And this is how it all went down. And this is how this usually digresses into a non-consciousness. Uh, we're going to stay focused on not what the myths are, but what do they hint at in great antiquity? Well, we only know what we're finding. We know that there's highly engineered soil. We know that there's giant cymatic polygonal blocks that have to do with waves and frequencies. So there's a little shadow of a window into a society that would be conscious, that would have the ability, know the ability that by just being barefoot and connecting with this soil and connecting through the plants and these bacteria and these funguses that these are part of a neural network because like the secret life of trees, like Peter Walhall and the, uh, sorry, I, uh, 
I had to clear my throat there. The uh, uh, Secret Life of Trees, we're talking about the fungal and bacterial networks within the soil between even different whole species of trees can complement and connect each other and feed each other. And I don't think that that's an accidental design. I think it's a developed one where we had a planet that was so interconnected and so well-tuned, not because it was random, but because it was groomed that way. And those are, I think, what the the very... Uh, shadow it, it right now it's like just not in the main spotlight but it's in the shadows it's showing that this is a society that had that kind of control and freedom with their actual genome to connect themselves in their mind and their body not just to the planet and communicate but to each other and that's just some of the echoing circumstances that i think prove it out but then I guess maybe one of the most important things is what do we do with it? And that might be uh, the practices, like you said, you mix them up, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And that, that, I think that's important, right? It's not. Yeah, I, I think getting stuck on one particular practice, you're limiting yourself for one. And, um, and I, I don't know. I, I, I just like to explore different things. I think just taking the one thing is not a good idea. Just like, e even with my thinking and what I believe, I, I, I try to be really, really flexible and really not adopt any one certain perspective or opinion on anything. I like to keep things really flexible because I think the more flexible I, I, I am, the, the more I'm able to expand. Like something that's rigid is not going to expand. You know? Yeah, I don't, there's no, we are so uh, in our infancy of understanding our past and, and we are so excited to get to know our past and to understand it. I, I know I've said recently a lot of times over because I, I think it's important to break the paradigm and to just stop doing this, but there are so many filters, whether it's the world of alternative research or standard academia, always labeling everything as this is the first we've ever found. So it's the first you've ever found, but it's the first temple ever. It's the first this ever. It's the first that ever. It's like, well, this has been the only one found. So it's uh, the first uh, hunter gatherers, you know, whatever it is, it's always the first. And it's like, stop doing that. Stop digging up 5% of a site and telling me you have a clue what they were thinking or how many people were there when you were determined for the last 150 years in all of known archaeology to say that this whole site shouldn't exist like Gobekli Tepe. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to consciousness, it's the same thing where it's like, again, there's been a series of uh, practices or religions or fill in the blank where we connect to a point, but we're not past that point. But uh, here is this new development, these superhuman abilities, these connections to our immune system are, are, are very tactile reasons to say, hey, look, uh, along with the placebo effect, that's an actual thing where people get better, treat themselves of cancer. There's whole mm -hmm. TED Talks on this where just your own consciousness deals with the disease and your body easily manipulates and fix it. And is that really something that you would need to go to the doctor for? Is it really that we're just on, again, we're in safe mode and on mute. So 
the full functionality of the human brain and body has been uh, really mixed up because the planet isn't groomed and engineered. And we don't have an understanding of what should or shouldn't be a connection. Like, the, it, it, is it just a, oh, well, look, there's a random forest, a random jungle. But we already know from a lot of the logging going on in, for instance, South America, that there were actual communities living what was supposed to be virgin forest. It turns out it wasn't virgin forest at all, that there's these huge earthwork towns and cities and metropolises. And I'm not even including like the LIDAR scans in Guatemala and the other ones that are being discovered Mm -hmm. that showed possibly, yeah, I'm not even including those. It's just that we assume that a forest should be a forest. But Victor Schauberger, who we I brought up earlier, who is considered one of the greatest naturalists, but he's also, quite frankly, I think a great quantum theorist. This is a guy who saw that rocks, that the temperature of water itself, like there are some crazy things we've been learning about, not just intent towards water, but in the world of consciousness, that water is affected by temperature to the point where even hockey rinks know that temperature that starts a little bit warmer freezes water harder than if it starts cold. How's that? How does that work? Water that's warmer freezes harder than cold water. And that's known. And when you want to have a really hard hockey rink, you know, there's, they under, there's a recipe. It's not just ice is ice and water is water. And vaporized water is, uh, well, it's just, you know, it's just a mist. It's just in the air. It's part of oxygen. You know, it's not that simple. And Victor Schauberger saw that, why is this, for instance, a trout? Why is this trout sitting in the stream, not moving? It's not fanning. It's not doing anything. It's just somehow it's maintaining its drift and its exact location. And then as an experiment, he went upstream from the trout that was sitting there and put in warm water. And suddenly the fish gets flustered and has to swim off and find a new place. But why was the temperature varying? And ironically, although being a naturalist, it was Victor Schauberger who also from Austria that developed the log chutes that were able to bring logs down chutes. So much, much heavier logs were able to be put into water. And he had argued and they laughed at him that a tenth, a tenth of a degree made the difference as to whether or not the logs would float or sink. And they laughed at him. And what's ironic is that it's less than that to determine if a human is sick or not. Like we, we actually know this. And he had figured this out a hundred ish, barely years ago. And this is crazy because the idea that water takes on not just a form. And this is where the consciousness point comes in. There's something called easy water. There's a fourth state of water. Water can burn. And people are like, well, yeah, there's these elements in it. And so if you separate the elements, they can burn. But the guy who developed it, like there, there's just a number of uh, experimenters that have found that in a living creature, for instance, like Dr. Gerald Pollack, there is a, state of water and this is considered a new state of water and it only is existing in living creatures and it's like a a viscous uh i don't want to say slimy that gives no one a good visual but it's 
a state of water that only exists in living beings. And what if that layer, along with your intent, the frequency, the waves, and your brain entrainment through your meditations, just to paint a picture now for everyone that's been listening, what if those meditations, that fourth state of water, and its ability to attach itself externally through your directed thought process helps create the state of the natural environment around you, right down to plants and animals that seem to do better around certain people. Why them and not others? Why are some people are alleged to have a green thumb? Is it just that or is it their intent and their love towards the creature they're caring for, even if it's a plant? And is it that abstract when the placebo effect is an actual medical device that actually cures cancer and other diseases? There are too many examples of all of this indicating to being an inherent born genetic technology that as you readapt it, this state of water within the cellular level of or within the skin, this layer of water could be part of that network. And our ability, whether we're drinking water, it's not a matter of just earlier talking about aquifer water being good for you to be a healthy, I'm not, I'm thirsty, I need water with high nutrients mm -hmm. in it. But imagine you and I being able to be at a park and we're so interconnected just matter of fact, like knowing what time of day it is, like it's the afternoon, it's the morning, I can just tell, I don't even need to know where the sun is. What if just in presence, you could just easily say, hey, you, you need to drink some water right now, just because you can sense it, not because they're sweating and you mm -hmm. just went for a run, but there's that, that familiarity with uh, all the environment around it and there are indicators from your skin to a sensation like synesthesia, that it's not just a matter of sensing someone else's touching or visualizing a color or a number and being able to apply that uh, onto another object. Like I think I mentioned once carving. This is, these are uh, these synesthesia abilities tied in with these other connections allow us to internally and externally manipulate our health and our environment and each other in a collective consciousness. And that's maybe more of a topic spectrum than we can cover in one conversation. Well, I think one of the things that I, I was thinking though is like to, to build so many structures and engineer the soil and, and to do this, um, people probably had to work together with their intention it probably i think it would be unlikely that it was just one individual with intent i would have to imagine that it's a group of people focusing oh, yeah. on one intention to, to to do that well we have we have such a large capacity mentally and we have uh, i think other people we have different neural pathways and it's often described that when they looked at, for instance, Einstein's brain. He donated it to science. And they, when they cut it open, they made a physiological determination that the neural networks that what we think hold memory are extensive. It's like a very full, large 
tree with a lot of branches, where some people's neural, the, where they store their memories, look more like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. And mm-hmm. so, so one of the arguments is if we're only 10 to 14% conscious, whatever the number is, and you look at something like Einstein's brain, all things are not equal, someone else might need 30 or 40% consciousness uh, to do what Einstein could do with 10 or 14. And what if, what if Einstein's 10 or 14 was really somebody else's 7%, but they just applied it to a sporting activity or art? We'd, mm-hmm. we, we make an assumption that if you were really smart, you'd think numbers. But what if it was somebody like, uh, uh, just thinking of him recently, the, uh, the guy that the, the horse whisperer, um, there's a great documentary about him and nobody could understand. He made people who had worked with horses his whole life cry because he could look at a horse and know how the horse felt. So, and, and communicate in a way, I mean, do things with the, with horses that allowed them to not need a burr in the gut or even a saddle or a harsh treatment or beating. It was, it was incredible, but, are, are those the symptoms of a highly functioning and conscious brain? And it has nothing to do with the extent, the, the physiological numerical extent of those branches in the brain. It has to do with your awareness of it. So to get to your point of what if it's the consciousness, imagine being, what if we were all 100% conscious and what would that look collectively in processing as a group, uh, well, as something as boring as a mathematical problem, but what mm-hmm. if it's the mathematical pro- problem to launch a very large ship from the planet to somewhere else? Or what if it's a problem of an outstanding mathematical equation for hyperspace travel or planting on the moon or a fertilizer, you know, it could be a fertilizer recipe. It could be a genome sequencing but if you had a set of minds like a supercomputer or a server farm that we think of now, but mm-hmm. it's all human brain work and it's not a requirement of each human to consciously go at it, but it is as we've maybe deified or mystified the role of a single individual within that group to guide himself. Maybe he just needs like cloud storage He's using the collective human consciousness to compute his own thought process. And the more people we have on the planet, that collective human consciousness has the extra RAM, the extra, because why is it that, that was a question that always fascinated me for a long time was, as I'm looking at these subjects and, and doing my research, why is it that people are not thinking of this in Leonardo da Vinci's time? And everyone's like, Leonardo da Vinci is amazing. Well, I think Leonardo da Vinci is amazing. But when he thought of a tank and when he thought of, you know, there's so many famous drawings by Leonardo. Right. And, but they're all in technology that he could imagine. So they're wood, they're metal, but they're in formats that look like birds, look like, you know, it's a tank, but it's very... it's uh, timely to his generation. Nobody as brilliant as they ever were are thinking of uh, flash drive technology and cell phones and just drawing one out in, you know, 
1430 or 1520 or 1680. That's not, uh, you know, thinking of a more advanced clock. And that's cool, but it, everyone's within their, um, they're not too far out of that, just that brain space. And you and I, I think that'll date us. I'm sorry, I'll throw it out there. But we can think of a time when desktop computers were just an idea and were just, you know, this is neat. This will be fun. I can type a paper on it. I don't think even we thought that computers and our time frame would be where we are right now in front of the equipment we're in front of. Right? Yeah, that's definitely true. And I, I mean, I mean, also, I think we, I've been disappointed in certain areas like space travel, but with the computers, yeah, my we definitely uh, have done it. Yeah, where's our flying cars? We were all promised flying cars. A whole generation before us. <laughs> See, we're young. There's a whole generation that were told they would have flying cars. Where's the flying yep. cars? And now, yeah, I get it. There's flying cars out there. And yes, I've seen some of the latest ones. And yes, I've, I've done some piloting myself, but I am uh, not been back on that training program. But the point is, is that I don't think even though we couldn't in, in post uh, medieval times and post dark ages, I don't think that we've had the human, uh, the, the quantity of population that even if they don't live with the invention, as in cell phones and laptops and uh, the extensive technologies that we either fly, drive, or float in a boat, the technologies we have right now are in the consciousness. They're in people who even live in tribal environments. A lot of them have large watercraft up and down rivers, but they're motorized now. They're mechanized. So they're aware. And so we have more people. We think we have more people on earth than we've ever had, but isn't it really interestingly coincidental that now at this population level, it seems easy to think of LED lighting and the technologies just to watch some entertainment program on whether it's Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, laptop, giant throw screen casting is no big deal now. And yet, again, generationally speaking, a thousand years ago, uh, or, you know, there we are, Leonardo da Vinci time, the extent of the dreaming, the extent of the capacity for invention was still uh, anchored to a total, I think, consciousness of the world. Even if he wasn't aware of every invention or anything else, it's just an analogy where today it doesn't seem like we've hit a limit where now we are experimenting again with our physiology. And I think exactly Stieg and Wim Hof and Ido Portal and Erwin LaCour and the movement world and the, the experimentation with meditation that is directly connecting to your autonomic nervous system. These are only able to be explored today the way they're being in this consciousness state because the amount of people have reached a point of awareness that there is a collective human, again, theoretically, there's collective human consciousness that allows the RAM for these explorations. Uh, that's why it seemed to be coming, like we're not scared of it. We're not 
not trying it. We're not like, well, it seems like an odd thing, but I'm going to sit down and connect to my actual third eye, even if it is crusty with calcium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and um, like, like one of the things that you mentioned, and I think you mentioned it last night that, that I also, you know, agree with is the whole idea of of Gaia, you know that that the Earths are working as as one entity, and um, you know I, I I believe that that maybe the Earth has more of an effect on us than we do on it. Oh yeah, because I mean the premise right away is that again that this is a the th- irrelevant to the theory of evolution, which again, it's the theory of evolution. Instead of us starting with the facts, we continue to support facts that support theories, which is insane. It skews and it it demonizes the facts if they don't fit the theories. And that's insane to not start with the facts. So it has completely, in reference to the earth, destroyed our ability to negotiate whether it's in politics and construction and in ideologies on energy the problem is if you look at this from the facts and the ground of a highly advanced ancient society reaching a level that they are terraforming great portions of the planet moving thousand ton blocks from thousands of miles away or hundreds up miles like in the sky i'm talking like from you know like uh, machu picchu or in uh Waman or oliante tambo or you know in the south american provinces where there are quarry sites that are at elevations thirteen thousand feet below and 50 miles away in a mountain range how did they get there and so eventually you have a society that can work with sequoias and redwoods which again this goes into that th- that line of thinking trees and forests are random? I don't think so. These societies were planting and growing these fungal and bacterial. This was as natural as anything. What we're identifying as natural is a engineered technology. And, and that, and again, that makes us like immediately, I think I paint a picture for people. Mm -hmm. If I had somebody say that to me, all I would see is a lab coat and sterilization and like really boring people in a lab doing like, well, now we need more plants and animals. No, I, I don't think it was like that. But there, this filter we have on our theories, uh, the filter we have on the facts that we only take the facts that they fit the theories of evolution, immediately make it difficult for us to put that down and actually consider the engineering and terraforming to the point of technology, a planet and more and more the biology of the planet of what we are learning of it and a global 50,000, 30,000 foot view of it appears more to be an engineered beast that we actually plugged into and had a pretty darn good time with. And I think worked really well, but it's not right now. (laughs) (laughs) So that Gaia thing, like, yeah. So to your point, it's, and I didn't mean to bring up asthma, but you know, that's 
one of his concepts was the mm-hmm. idea of a conscious, a consciousness that involves the individual, but is collective. And, and yes, for those of you who are either younger or huge fans of Avatar, so think, think like Avatar, but don't think blue bat people. Think, right. think it has nothing to do, yet again, you know, in our understanding of things, it's loin claws and swinging from trees. No, just still think, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Roman robe slash uh, Indian robe slash, you know, Japanese, Chinese robe, uh, communing in the earth, not in the abstract or in a goddess way or a God way, but in a direct technological uh, hand in hand association that allowed you to, you know, collect call whether it's plant, animal, or person in a way that just put us through the universe, Hmm. allowing us to explore because it's not, everyone thinks that the night sky is where it is, but we've been moving. And yes, there's meteors and asteroids and different things that we come in contact with, but the very planet itself is traveling through space and a society that was doing things on the ground, one of the things we talked about would have also had satellites. And we think of satellites as metal objects, but when you're working with stone and high crystalline content uh, rocks that as you develop your wave frequency technologies and your genetic technologies, right now we have the ability to grow bricks from bacteria. Kind of like coral reefs Mm -hmm. we actually have you can look this up we can grow rock and just like a 3d printer can print something with organics and like we were just talking about earlier livers hearts Mm -hmm. ears you know we have the we have medical 3d printers so we're we're using more of a an organic type of technology yeah rather than electronic yeah and what if what what we might identify as an asteroid or a meteor uh, like this uh, NASA probe that just landed uh, and took some samples off an asteroid. And there's some excitement that a lot of what that looked like didn't look like it was natural. It looked like it was artificial objects. At least that was the conversation I was having uh, with Richard Hoagland uh, a couple nights ago and that some of the data had just come out about what was found on that asteroid. But what we might want to consider is that in, an, in a prior time frame, a highly advanced ancient human society would have sent out satellites. They also may not be made out of metal. They could be made out of living or inorganic, what we would think of as an inorganic uh, object like brick or stone, but it's energy systems, all nanotechnology. It's mm-hmm. ability to use the sun and solar and direct itself might, again, cover principles as far as thrust that we understand but in going dormant between galaxies or or being energized or you know repairing itself just like the living bricks that we've created now the idea that we would recognize a prior advanced ancient human technology as anything more than space garble or we would get a a signal and we you know like right now there's a signal that might be from a neutron star but it could you know, we, we're constantly looking for signals from outer space, yet this does all tie back to, we know based on U.S. military requests, 
there are unidentified objects all around the planet. There always have been, which brings us to, I think, one of the questions of, well, if there's a highly advanced conscious society, why are they still on earth? Or the question is we've romanticized being in other dimensions or uh, different fields or planes, or there's so much dialogue on what that looks like, or we're, we're, we're all maybe discussing the same things, but we're, we're mislabeling it or we're, or we're interpreting it through our own uh, upbringing and research and religious filters. And we're calling it one thing or another but the reality is that the consciousness of whether you achieved another level of it, home is home. I, we, we don't run out. I, the best answer I have for everyone on this is you don't run out for the 150 tribes or so that live around the planet that live very simply. We don't go give them all Jeeps and give them cell phones and tell them to get out of the jungle or the desert. We haven't done that. There's societies all over the earth, whether it's Africa or uh, near Alaska, the Arctic mm-hmm. circles and Siberia uh, or other remote locations in those areas. We, we don't tell those people they can't live like that or the Sengalis, that, that island off of Sengal that killed that missionary a couple of years ago. And Marco Polo had been to the island and it said, don't go to this island. <laughs> he literally said it, don't, <laughs> don't, don't go. And I mean, like everybody, just don't go. And and there are tribes that are living these uh, ancient, where, where, and there, there is even a label for you. They're living in this ancient, you know, loincloth way of life that we think is the origin to all man. And we don't have enough of the human story to say that. We can say that there are Neanderthal and Denisovan and other possible forms of humanity, but we, we do not have a complete fossil record, let alone one that really does support the theory of evolution, the way it was described over a hundred years ago. That's just ludicrous. We, In every technology and system that we learn on earth, we develop new techniques. Only in the world of history, we continue to hold on to a bunch of guys that didn't want women to vote's ideas. It's bizarre. It's like, that's the best we've come up with, a bunch of Victorian <laughs> dudes. Uh, um, we got a whole, by God, we're going to hold their theories up true and golden calf them on the top of every ziggurat in town. Yeah, There's that. It, it, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense in one way, but it does make sense in another way if, you know, something is being repressed basically yeah that's that is a weird um it is a theory that you know the dirty water drugs uh alcohol or uh religions um you know burning and destroying anything that doesn't agree with their religion so it's a way to help delete the old technology that forgot to be maybe picked up by an ancient advanced human society or or we don't want them to figure that out too fast or as we came to America again, as we've gone through this renaissance and we get to America again during our uh, manifest destiny run, uh, suddenly you have someone like Joseph Smith who's visited allegedly by, you know, the story goes that Mm -hmm. the first Mormon is visited by angels and given gold tablets. And then was that done? Uh, Just theoretical for me is suddenly well, just like the rush to go to Jerusalem during the Crusades and 
anything that didn't quite fit the Christian line of thinking got destroyed. Is it possible that it was within uh, a higher, not lower, but a higher society's reasoning that, oh boy, they're going to, they're back on the American continent. They're here to stay phase two. Let's make sure that they get the fever again. And they head to South America and they start destroying things like they did already during the colonial period. Let's, let's see if they can't dig a little deeper and, uh, find other pyramids and structures and make sure that the antiquity is, or, or is it the opposite? Is it benevolent? Is it kind? Is it, is it, if we induce this new fervor and if there's a love and desire to know this religion deeper, mm-hmm. part of their interest will be to do, uh, although are uh, religiously driven, uh, religious archeology span where they would head South. Was it intended to drive Americans as they were settling to desire to explore the ancient ruins in, in Central America and South America? Was it intended that they find Machu Picchu in 1911? Was it intended that uh, Colonel Percy Fawcett would get lost trying to find the lost city of Z that <laughs> Brad Pitt played, you know? Yeah, I, watched, it, I did watch that movie as we talked last time. Oh, uh, you should, I'll have to say, I can't remember the name of the documentary right now. I'll have to get you the uh, the documentary about it first. And the the town that he was in, I mean, they, they're all still there. And the experiments, uh, they they stop and they stop at a riverbank and they show you Terra Preta, the engineered soil. And you casually mention that it's, well, at least in this area, the Brazilian uh, basin, it's at least twice the area of Spain. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, anybody? You want to stop for a minute? You have you have engineered soil in what's considered a wet desert. That was something else that's never been pointed out, is that one of the reasons that no one thought that there was large pop, and mind you, theory, uh, Victorian archaeology slash carried into modern science, that no one could live in what was called a wet desert of the tropics, that the soil didn't have a richness and then they find Terra Preta. And then they find out it's like the most nutritious soil on earth. And then they can't exactly reproduce it. And it's all over in areas that aren't supposed to have a large population center. And yes, uh, no mystery here. I guess as a side note, as you start digging, what you're going to find is the conquistadors. The very first conquistadors talked about cities up and down the Amazon with tens of thousands of people. So it's not that um, ancient peoples weren't at much larger metropolis centers than what was even in Europe by the time the conquistadors were coming. We're talking cities bigger than Paris and, and London easily. And that was shirked off as an exaggeration. And you'll find as you start to look that these conquistadors and the earliest, earliest arrivers before the plague started and took out over 90% of native indigenous populations. And again, by native and indigenous, I'm talking about post-flood, post-apocalyptic, dynastic societies of the Aztecs, the Mayans, possibly the Olmecs, which is just a name given to those giant African-looking multi-ton heads that are found Mm -hmm. all over Central America. And the thought is that that group may have had intercontinental travel 
but we we don't actually have an origin story for the oldest, oldest, most advanced looking ruins in South and Central America. But we, you will, when you start to look, see these early population accountings and, and it was just thought of as absolute ridiculous exaggerations of explorers who wanted to be famous. And here we are with LIDAR scans showing super highways bigger than anything we've ever built. And then you tie and you want to geek out a little bit. And you look at the earliest group that got lost. I'm blanking on the guy's name. I'm so sorry. There's just sometimes there's just like too much. But one of the first conquistadors that was also the first one, I think, to get down the entire length of the Amazon. At one point, they came upon a road and the description said that the road went on as far as they could see and straight in either direction and was better built than anything they've ever seen in Rome. And that's incredible. And that, and at that point, we're, we're talking about Roman roads that are some mm-hmm. over a thousand years old. And these were super highways in the middle of the Amazon and they didn't know which way to walk. They were trying to figure out how to get out. And they were like, well, we got to go one way. So they, they picked away. But these descriptions are in accountings and memoirs of, early, uh, of the early explorers, uh, again, before... Uh, disease completely wiped out the majority of from North America to South America, a lot of native populations. And so we get this complete loss, but we assume then that there's maybe a sweet spot that, okay, well, maybe around the same time the Roman Empire was falling or maybe still existed that these societies had grown, but they were very native. They were very possibly Polynesian or Chinese and you know, anyway, it's an interesting digression because, again, we relate to South America as a place that natives kind of either came across a land bridge 13,000 years ago or 12,000 years ago, or uh, the Polynesians kind of boated over to, and the Chinese maybe stopped at based on some of the languages in uh, Central America and the city names. And, and yeah. even early paleoanthropologists knew that the Chinese were there. And it's just never talked about, you know, we don't have any statues of Chinese admirals and yet they were there, <laughs> you know, there could be, how'd that be next to Columbus? We take down Columbus and throw up some badass Chinese admiral with a super Navy. You know, <laughs> that's, he already stopped in Cali, you know, and, <laughs> and, you know, dropped off a few dynasty coins. And I, I think that that's, I mean, even Max Uli, the, the father of uh, South American archaeology is a, a German archaeologist. And I actually have a couple of his overviews in my book for you to read. So you can kind of get this gist of it where uh, it's clear that many, many, many peoples were in South America. And more importantly, how it relates to ancient advanced humans is that it's clear that the adaptation of these dynastic peoples were taking basalt and andesites and massive granite constructions and reconstructing them with mud brick like the ziggurats or like the step pyramid at Saqqara in Egypt where they're like oh this is the first one they were just trying it out well you know these are very complex large uh, megalithic constructions that were kind of maybe blown apart or found in pieces. And between Central and South America, these d- dynastic peoples of the Mayans, Aztecs, and uh, maybe Olmecs, uh, all of them were rebuilding or adapting the city structures and the, and the buildings that they were finding and using the soil that they were using 
to grow and possibly expand. I mean, there's a slash and burn technique, but anyway, it's, it's all very interesting because when you back up now and stop placing this uh, template of, well, 50,000 years ago, we were all banging rocks. Well, here's like the, they, they, they walked over to North America when you just put all that off the table and then stop drawing massive conclusions when you only dig up 5% of a site and then look at what would be the log logical consequence of having more mental shared human consciousness on the planet and we are accelerating. So this is where people are really funny especially some of our, maybe our gray state and some of the people who are higher up. We look at these places that we could help. Uh, I mean, how many times have we tried to help Africa or there's people starving in this world that don't need to go without food mm -hmm. or don't need to go without any of it. And, and there's a segment, I think, that thinks, okay, uh, these people, these third, uh, we call it third, second and first class world. And we think that there's no value or, well, they're humans, but, you know, we're not going to stop making medicine. We're not going to stop having cars. Hollywood's going to turn on. We think that these people that are living in these environments don't have a value. And I'm going to argue not just the opposite because it's simply humanity. I'm going to argue that the very inventions that you're enjoying, that all of it has to do with a collective human consciousness that is only achievable rather than just thinking of something better to do with wood. And mind you, carvers and wood sculptors today, I think are rediscovering some ancient gorgeous techniques that haven't existed. But at the same time, I do think there, there is mediums classically like wood and metal and stone that have had techniques applied to them that are only because we have a collective human consciousness that spans so many minds now. And I don't think people look at it like that. They think that because these people are dying and starving or living more simply that they don't either have a value to them or that they're taking up space or the world can go without it or we have too many people. And I think it's the opposite. I think the level of consciousness and society that we once had directly correlated to the technology we had if that's you know, it, that's, it, it definitely makes sense it's it's know. not a comfortable uh well that's a that's a lot for a rabbit hole but it's <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah i, I mean they, they may uh, i can't really think of the word um, I don't know what the word would be. Like they, 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 they just are like the, uh, um, like keepers of, of, of a, you know, a certain type of, of knowledge that, 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 you know, still is in the collective consciousness. Yeah. I, I don't think that it's not a, it's it's okay where every I, all of it is exciting and I think ties to different right now people have come from this fog this uh, amnesia that who am I where am I from somehow like they're just feeling like it's on the tip of their tongue and they've grown up I mean in America we we usually all grow up with a very traditional uh, background that we have a very um, 
we have a, a background that usually involves, now I grew up Catholic mm-hmm. and I, I don't think I exactly have the Catholic guilt, but as an example, a lot of people grow up with a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of disconnection from their most powerful abilities, which include intimacy, which isn't just about just the physical attributes to it. There is a Zen, there's a meditation in it. And it's something that uh, along with the breathing and the meditation and your exercise, like people get that it's important to exercise and diet well, but they don't often always relate that conscious water intent that it's not an abstract desire to just not be depressed or not angry or calm. It actually does have to do with bringing out, teasing out consciousness, not to just be more uh, pleasant, but to be that, to, I guess, really to be more connected within yourself to all of it because I guess I'm not stating the obvious. It brings a joy. It brings energy. It brings literally excitement to get up every day if you yeah. can do this. Yeah. And I think there's like one of the things that came up like, I don't know if it was last night or what it was, but, you know, once you have everything that you need, your, your, your food, your shelter, family, I mean, at, at that point, there's, there's really nothing else to do except that. Yeah. I, I think it's uh we don't know everything that uh we don't know everything that's available. We don't know um I don't know, it's it's not it, it's just not gonna be resolved by just having a good diet or just doing exercise or being habitual. It's gonna come from self experimentation. Yeah, you gotta put and, the pieces of the puzzle together, figure out which pieces go where. And that's why, like, like you know, like when you ask me about, like, you know, what do I practice, you know, I, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to do is maybe figure out where some of these pieces fit. And like you also mentioned, it might not be the same for every individual either. Yeah, and 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 just to back up, this whole consciousness uh, attempt, or to become, or to go into this world and not feel like you're just grabbing at again new mystifications you know just uh there's uh definitely a way of thinking out there that just thinks it involves uh i don't know how to politely put it i'll just skip it the point is uh finding an aquifer in your Mm -hmm. in your town in your state finding something where you can get learning about the mineralization the content within water uh what is a life water in the sense, like you said, the tree of life and the idea of uh, the, and again, I think it's a mystical story of the eternal, the eternal tree, the mm-hmm. uh, fountain of youth, that, that whole story, but uh, conscious water also uh, involves, there's a man named Johan Grander. He's passed away now. He won the highest award given by science by the Russian Academy of Science. He was given awards by the Austrian government yet his filters there was a theory that water can mimic healthy water and it can mimic a water that's not healthy that to filter water you only need a few drops in a well and the well will cure itself once it has healthy water in it and there is a lot to be said when we were talking about like the fourth state or fifth state of water about that uh, layer that's within the human body 
And whether it's cold or hot or whether it is structured in reference to its mineral content and its uh, energy levels, all of this relates to not just the food you grow and eat and that you drink, but that presence around you, that water is on a conscious level. What's the one thing that's all around us all the time? Uh, it's in the air. It's in us. It makes up the majority of us. I'm in you, with you, and all around you. And it is water. And you can almost look at it as a, a connective material. Mm-hmm. Like you're in a consciousness pool. And when you send out a, a signal of, in your mind, when you send out, when you create a thought, you create a, a sequence. And there's a lot of different ways that people relate to this idea of vibrational and frequency energy, which is, I know for anyone listening, we haven't touched on that because it is uh, understanding a lot of times right now is when people want to bring up the Fibonacci sequence and some of the mathematical organizations of heartbeats uh, like Dave Winter's work. And I think it's so important and relevant to like going down the consciousness conversation for us to uh, give people some practical opportunities to go out not only and learn, but go find some healthy local aquifer Mm -hmm. that is available to you to get this high mineral water. Try growing some plants in it. Try thinking about what, if you have a potting soil, think about what are the chemicals in it. Learn a little bit about, you know, how many minerals do a plant really need? It's not the minimum. It's not that the plant can grow. What creates the complexity of mineral content within the plant that you're going to grow, whether it's a tomato. And, and a lot of people might just say, well, yeah, I'm going to grow a garden in my backyard. But if you've lived in a city that's over 100 years old, did, did you live by a foundry? That's a place where they're going to be smelting and you could have heavy metal in your soil. There's a whole area of South Minneapolis that despite uh, the tens of thousands and millions of dollars in fines you would receive if you were to dump something illegal, it is well known within the EPA that there's a whole only by volunteer do you have to tear up your yard. You can volunteer. There's a whole um, a super fund set aside because of all the old foundries and the lead and the, and the uh, mercury that's in the soil. And there's a whole community, thousands that live in this area of the city. Some of them have chickens and they have homegrown farms and they're growing in soil that's contaminated with arsenic and mm-hmm. lead and heavy metals. And, the, and what's it matter if you replace your yard, but not the yard next to it? So these are all things where people start to break down and say, well, what can I do? Well, I am so sorry, but you're gonna have to do what all of us are doing, which is in short, just take one thing at a time. If you want to grow a tomato plant uh, to have tomatoes or you want an herb garden, consider aeroponics, which is a way to deliver over 56 nutrients to your plant's roots developed by NASA. And think about not just the pH balance of the water because you need no soil and you need growing lights, but the chances that there are good chances that you could create a system where, excuse me, you're growing not only some of your basic foods, experiment with one, but you're now controlling how happy, because you'll get into that real quick, that sounds, music, vibrations, and frequencies affect the growth of plants. And so does your attitude, like we talked earlier. Mm -hmm. And then that consciousness of the water. So get out and experiment and know that one level is 
you're growing your own food. Another level is what's in my soil. The third level is maybe really knowing that the kind of the mineral content of your water and your soil matter. And if you don't use soil, like if you do switch to aeroponics and if you do start to do more with conscious water, then what does that, what does structured conscious water look like? Is it just the sounds for the brain entrainment when you wake up or throughout your day? It's not a matter of just hearing trickling and babbling water. What frequency, where's your, where is your consciousness at based on the very frequency? And, and this is relevant, I think, and a lot of people will chalk this up and maybe think I'm saying feng shui. That's the mystification of a forgotten art or science of developing a home to really flow with your life, with the ability to prehab and rehab when you're injured or when you're not just feeling safe because you lock a door, but for your home to be a place of rejuvenation, which is something I've been passionate about for years because I've done historical remodeling for almost 20 years, but I had been developing a, a, a theory and a philosophy around that the very home you live in should not be just, I don't care if you have a million dollar home or not, you can still buy the same asbestos lead slash formaldehyde off-gassing chemical carpets and paints and woods and cabinets. And all you've done is build a more expensive carcinogen uh, box than someone who has some place where all the off-gassing has stopped because they bought an over, older home. But neither home is suiting your movement, your mental and physical complexity, the way you uh, move and stretch in the morning. It's encumbered by the very place you sleep and you wake up and you move in. It doesn't contribute to your consciousness. Four rooms with one room for yoga and one room for working out and one room for movies and a dining room, these are very simplistic ways of developing how you entrain your brain and consciousness. And yet again, we have, I think now our third part set aside for consciousness videos. We can just cover uh, actual growing water filtration. We can look past feng shui and start looking at, mm -hmm. you know, developing home and living techniques that allow you to uh, live in that more presence. And again, that's the goal is um, it's not about losing weight. It's not about not being depressed. If I told you that without a drug, you could wake up happier with more energy and never be tired, never be down, be more excited as the day went on and not have any energy less than you did when you woke up as to about 10 minutes before you go to bed. And who doesn't want to be more like that, more present and more just without an effort, without having to have a conscious mantra of life doesn't suck. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, those are all, I think, uh, uh, more appealing, I think, than just saying, well, you know, if you do all these steps, you're going to lose weight or you'll be, yeah, everybody wants to be as fit as they can be, but it's a natural consequence mm -hmm. when you're being present in your life and you're enjoying life instead of enjoying the fuel and the food that you're eating instead of uh, twisting the purpose. It doesn't mean eat gross liquid vegetables for the rest of your life. It, it, it means that when you do eat, challenge yourself to make it yummy, but 
the yumminess should be also the state of mind it brings you, not just to feel good because you're happy, but to make that meditation when you're doing the Wim Hof or Stieg or the breathology, when you're doing that breathing technique and when you're connecting, literally you can feel electrical forces within your body, a control like you would not believe more present to that because of everything you're slowly incorporating and then learning. These are all really exciting ways to connect in a real way back to this consciousness. And it isn't going to involve the highly structured terraformed world that we once had, but we can start by structuring our home environments and the way we live and move more similar to this. And it's also self-experimentation and our history that we need to keep digging up and evaluating from not antiquated theories, but from the facts in the ground. And they are so unreal and exciting. You know what? I am, I'm going to say this. I, I, t- I take some serious knocks at the collegiate archaic system of thinking. Back in the day, casinos, this is directly related for everyone who's I'm about to say casinos and colleges. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, it was thought that uh, Las Vegas thought that they would lose money if they taught people how to gamble. And I got fascinated by this in the early 2000s when they shift a, shifted a paradigm where they started hosting classes on roulette. They started hosting classes on how to play all the different dice games and to play poker. And what they found was they started getting more gamblers because people were afraid to one, be the one at the table that didn't understand the games that didn't understand how to play. They didn't want to be uh, stupid. And so there was a lot of people who wanted to play, but they didn't know how. And so if you didn't have someone who was patient or was teaching you, people just weren't playing and they started holding classes and the amount of gamblers like in freak economics totally increased. And I think the moral of the story is the same with collegiate environments where they're demanding quarter million dollar payments for archeological degrees to help maintain a paradigm that is, I, I, it's just ridiculous at this point. I mean, the, the aging, the dating, the construction, who they accredit, the Incas and the Mayans and the Egyptians and the Greeks and uh, in Asia. And the, again, the very fact that I can list off every Western archaeological site, but I'm not bringing up the Harapin. I'm not bringing off of the Neolithic and Paleo-Neolithic ruins in Japan and all the marine uh, uh, archaeology that is and isn't being done. But the reality is that if they would stop, if these colleges, my advice, because they need mine accordingly, but accordingly, here it is. Drop the 120-year-old theories. Start with the facts on the ground. Walk into a classroom and say, here are the practice mummies of Peru. They have a single suture line. Their necks don't enter their heads the way regular human skulls do. Their four magnum don't line up. It appears they're from all over the world. They're completely separate genetic strain. We haven't even done all the testing. Who would like to start with this known in the ground staring in our face problem? Next up, here's mummies with cocaine and tobacco and marijuana in them. These mummies are from Egypt. Okay, Who's going to start DNA sequencing every known mummy we have in storage from like, what are the ones that we want to reach and figure out? 
you know, the, these are, if we started with these, I think more people would go to college out of their minds, beating doors. Like they wouldn't care if they had a degree. Mm-hmm. People would just pay to sit in on classes, I think, where they are being exposed to the latest finds. And for us to rebuild our history would get them more people in and would create more college campuses and would revitalize it than this dinosaur environment where you barely learn anything appropriate to whatever it is you want to learn. And that's why there's so many private colleges teaching associated and certification programs. It's just, it's, they just won't give it up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I have a whole lot of issues that I don't know if you got to go into about colleges. <laughs> I mean, it, some it, of my that, best customers. That, 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 that's a that's a whole other episode about my opinion on colleges. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that this is a good road because you're you're part way there. Here's your prompting. Tell me, tell me, what what do you think of colleges? I, I think they suck. <laughs> That's, that's that's my short short version of it, but I I I, th- I think their only purpose is to maintain a um, a process of thought that that is no longer working or is no longer valid. It's it's just there because um, people are afraid of change because everyone. Um, I learned more. I probably learned more just from this podcast than I ever could have learned from the 15 years I spent in college. Ouch. <laughs> Give me my money back. <laughs> so, 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 you know, just that in itself tells me like, you know, the whole collegiate thing, it's just a, an expensive pain in the ass. Uh, unless you're going to school, um, maybe like to be a medical professional or something like that. Like my wife's going to school for nursing and it makes sense. But, but when it comes to certain fields like archeology, span psychology, um, even engineering, um, sociology, literature, um, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I think it's just, it, it just falls short every time. Yeah, I mean, we have these jokes about Bill Gates, uh, Michael Dell from Dell Computing, uh, the Oracle guy. Uh, there's a joke that says, if you want to be really successful and wealthy or, or successful and rich, uh, go to college, get a degree. If you want to be uber wealthy, be a dropout. Right. And, and the reality is that it's, it is a huge, it's not lost on me, the huge irony that people go to college to study people like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and they're okay. So there's going to be two parts. I'm going to, I'm going to stop the uh, I'm going to say it up front. One, these are people who are self-taught, but at the same time, one would argue, Oh, well in their day, they were in collectives that were very much like academic environments. So no, they were nothing like your academic environment. They were nothing like these artificial classrooms where you're almost like in a Japanese shogun where you're in a certain house and you better look at it the way this pers- this perspective uh, the the perspective of this particular professor determines whether or not you get an A or not. But um, to your point, 
the scientific equipment in order to become a surgeon, to become a doctor. Well, it's in these environments. So I don't really want the guy operating on me to have not had access to that equipment. But at this, <laughs> right? But, at, but at, this, <laughs> at the same time, uh, are they responsible for the advances? Uh, have they contributed? Yes, coll collegiate environments have contributed to advances in technologies, but it's not because they were smart. It was because very smart people needed access to their equipment. Mm -hmm. But I can't, you don't point to colleges to say, oh, that's the reason this breakthrough happened. We think back in history at moments and think of people and say, this person had this bright idea. Or uh, there are people in the world of math back in the day when Bohr and Einstein and Oppenheimer and Schrodinger and uh, all, all the greats between quantum mechanics uh, back to just, just at the turn of that period right before World War II. Uh, well, not right before, but through the 20s and 30s, the developments going on in Edison's labs and the electromagnetic theories and DC and current and electricity, but the mathematical equations being developed were not being developed in colleges. They were being developed by brilliant individuals who just saw it. And I think that's part of that, whether they knew it or not, that collective consciousness where this individual had an, a genetic adaptation or a disposition to tap into that and it was natural to them like people who are considered savants because they're born and can play the piano or like Mozart can be born and compose and play instruments or people who are in accidents and get head injuries and suddenly they speak French or German or suddenly they can they are a pianist or they are a gifted talented savant and it's almost considered to be unfair but the reality is, is that we all have these abilities. And so where in the world today, I, I think it is relevant to discussing what is a college worth? Uh, the people who are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yeah, okay, some of them went to school for music. But for the most part, the people who decided they were going to be in a band, they got up and they did it. The people that, like Michael Dell, and again, I in a positive light on this note, people like Bill Gates, people who were in, whether it is our current technology paradigm or uh, Elon Musk, uh, the, I, the people who just had an idea and ran with it, they didn't wait for a degree to tell them or permission that this is, well, you now are allowed to go out and invent something. Right. It, you know, it's that's more just, of a, a spirit of adventure and, and willing to take a risk. And, and yeah. to pursue it, you know, yes. not worry about the consequences. Like, because I think well, college does the opposite of what it, what it's meant to do. College puts people in a box, but but to really be successful and make new discoveries, you have to be outside. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so interesting as to I think I mean if anyone I'm not just. Uh, wanting to complain about it. My encouragement to everyone is when you're pas passionate about a subject, do not wait. Do not wait. Go after it. Whatever it is, don't be told that you need a slip of paper. I'm not telling you to go out and practice surgery here or be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> although you know, although I, I probably could do brain surgery with a drill. Uh, I think we've seen enough movies about that effect, right? Uh, I, I, it's worked well in a lot of like zombie apocalyptic environments. You've got to stop the swelling or he's going to turn into a Z. 
um, that, that went up, that went down that road fast. So yeah, if you want to wing it, um, let's do non-invasive. Let's do art. Let's do, uh, again, mathematical science. If you can get quicker access to a set of materials from another mathematician, but, uh, I know Carl Lehrberger of, um, you know, he's written uh, extensively on different ruins throughout North America that show the Celts, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and or, you know, Phoenicians. If you want to look into his work, it's pretty extensive as far as solar alignments, solstice alignments in ruins, in ancient rock art. Uh, it's pretty, the amount of stuff that he's found over the years is pretty significant. But I love one of the quotes in his book about archaeopriests, that the, that the, archaeology of mainstream media are more like a religion. So he calls them archaeopriests. And I think that that's brilliant because it's, it's more like they have their bishops, they have their peer reviewed, scratch each other's back paper deal. And, and again, it's all to support a business that's based on theories and only facts that support the theories that should make everything in your mind question not and it's not about disproving that they don't have valid finds or they don't have valid equipment that's not the point the point is to start with the facts and then build theories on the facts not have if your entire degree or mindset at this point is based on all the facts that you found that supported your theories you're looking at the facts wrong Absolutely. is all i'm saying yeah, yeah, it loses objectivity. Take it from dropouts like us. We know what we're talking about. And yeah, I, I went to I'm, school. I'm, kind of, I'm proud of like going to college for 15 years and not having a degree. Look, there's a lot of moving parts in what you learn. And quite frankly, getting a degree is just like a, why have something finished when it can always be an ongoing work? Exactly, yeah. And I, I went to school for music. I went to school for the violin. And... I was playing seriously from fifth grade on. I was teaching. I had a senior member of an orchestra teaching me. I, my intent was to possibly make a career out of it. So the irony is, is that, you know, my, my collegiate experience was in uh, music and I've always been fascinated by sounds, frequencies. Uh, that, that was an easy draw and an easy translation for me in looking at megalithic ruins and ancient structures. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's that. But uh, again, if you want to learn something, track it down, learn. They don't, I feel like high school at the, at the, the last thing you should learn by the time you're a junior, senior. Well, quite frankly, I think that the post-secondary enrollment option act, which was not designed around us being privileged, that was designed for us to catch up to the rest of the world. And I can't believe what's happened to the PSEO program in the last uh, 20 years where if anyone's wondering, there is a train going by. So I hope well, I love if everyone's train. wondering. That's, <laughs> I was that's, waiting uh, for the train. That is American industry behind us at work coming to your neighborhood. Well, based on the direction it's going, it's heading towards Fargo, which means it's possibly heading west along the uh, continental, which means it's heading through maybe towards Montana and Flathead Lake and all that. But anyway, yeah, so the idea is, uh, well, it is it's only getting louder now. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So 
man. All right, now I lost my train of thought. Where was that? <laughs> you lost your train of thought. <laughs> uh, ironic, right? Right. Um, <laughs> no, you know. Anyway, yeah. So we were. I think we were covering collegiate environments and yeah. learning things and adaptations. But uh, uh, where was I? I was just. Uh, oh, you're talking I, about your uh, you're going from like violin. You know, to oh. yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I think that uh, uh, consciousness, brain entrainment, and uh, the use of music, not just on a uh, sing-along sort of way, but on that deeper consciousness level, those are all triggers to help that brain entrainment. It's not a matter of just de-stressing and anxiety. But I think those frequencies and waves were all aspects of a greater, higher technology that included construction, like megalithic building. So instead of having a blueprint and using a tape measure to cut up a construction, the frequencies literally within your consciousness, using synesthesia where colors can form and shapes in, in front of you and in your mind that imagine showing up to work and throwing on your favorite music on your headphones and looking at a giant megalithic uh, 900 ton block that needs to have 20 cuts, uh, 12 feet tall, eight feet wide, 10 feet wide by, you know, 15 or 18 or 30 sides. And they all need to fit next to a block next to it. Exactly. What if the machines and the devices you're using to cut, you were able to shave away or even dust away down to the nanoparticle instead of just think of it as sawing. What if you were able to look at a block using synesthesia and you just saw through the quartz within the content of the block, the color purple, for instance. And as you cut, eventually there was no more purple. And so as you listen to what is your favorite musical tune, it was actually uh, the construction building plan for the blocks in the foundation of this building, which of course is all dusted and gone away, but these mm -hmm. giant megalithic blocks are being built by you just sanding away the color you see until there's no more purple and only brown or only green. And then you go, as you smooth over to another side, it's again, it's, a, it's an amber that's turning to a red and it's literally being projected through the music you're listening to, which in reality is an architectural plan. And instead of reading it by numbers and dimensions, you're just sensing it, feeling it, and seeing it through these abilities. So we don't uh, know how you would apply. We, that, that's an example of a way to apply an ancient high technology to create a cymatic polygonal construction that would not only move with earthquakes, but but based on how you place the blocks magnetically may have to do with communications and either uh, muting, uh, resonating, or uh, generating, or it, it could be any combo of waves and frequencies for communication to earthquake prevention. But it's a way to look at uh, brain entrainment and these abilities and these genetic uh, unconscious abilities that we currently chalk up to either mysteries or paranormal or it's a, a some uh, a religion or a philosophy and a meditation that it's a very abstract, disconnected uh, 
attempt. And I'm just saying, let's look back at this. And instead of questioning your faith in anything or your meditation practices that you've already attempted, try relating it, try, you know, looking at some of these new superhumans and their techniques and apply it yourself and try through your own practice to develop that greater connection and consciousness that is possibly going to lead you down roads that put you talking on shows like this about how you reached a whole different, I mean, that's the exciting part is as everyone tries this in their own way, we could end up having conversations with people that we wouldn't have possibly even fathomed we were going to have like right at this moment in like right. a year or six months. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would, I mean, I'm definitely always willing to try something new and, you know, you know, it encouraged my listeners too to, to, to do that as well. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not hard and it doesn't, uh, um, uh, it just doesn't take any effort. You can just do it. It's, it's, it's not like a crap load of time. Um, but you're, you're really, it's like, I think it gets, uh, so abstract and like, you know, it's so hard when you're in a metropolitan, a metro, just a metropolis, a metropolitan area that may have had arsenic, lead, mercury. Uh, you don't know if you don't know your soil, you could have just moved into a neighborhood and it might bum people out to the point where they're like, oh my gosh, I just wanted to plant some tomatoes and <laughs> don't get disheartened by that. It's uh, a challenge that you're now aware of and just work around it. But don't, don't worry about the whole garden. Just worry about one plant at a time. And instead of worrying about if you did get chickens and you're doing your own chicken thing, it's like, well, maybe they shouldn't be eating GMO corn, but maybe you live in an environment that's close to a river and has a lot of insects because they're mostly supposed to be eating insects and not corn, for instance. You know, don't, don't feed your chickens genetically modified. And one would argue, well, there's no proof otherwise. Okay, but just work on your steps of your own personal path to consciousness. It doesn't matter what they did with it a million years ago or a hundred thousand years ago as it relates to you grasping, touching, and rebooting something that in 15 minutes of learning how to do one of these breathing techniques could blow your mind. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, like definitely trying the different meditation techniques and the breathing, you know, that, 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 that's what really began to, to, to change my perspective on, on everything. And it also made, helped me make sense of some of the other stuff that I was studying. Like for a long time, I was reading about like a, a lot of Western type of philosophies, like occult and magic and stuff like that. And it was kind of going over my head. But then I started practicing like Eastern stuff, like meditation and things like that. And then all of a sudden it like just sort of clicked together for me. I think it's, it's exactly that where, again, we all start with an upbringing. Like my upbringing was uh, Roman Catholic. And I had an early questioning mind, but there's a lot of people who grow up in different, I think, I think it's, probably more accurate, at least in America, a lot of us grew up with a certain Christian upbringing. Uh, some people do have Eastern philosophy upbringings, but we start with some, I think most of us start with some mystification of what was once a science and what was once an ability, but we're all attacking it with this 
10 to 14% consciousness. And I think that was one of the things I was about to bring up when you hit about 10th or 11th grade. Uh, It's the idea of not just hitting a collegiate environment to learning a greater skill for your life, but to know what conscious water is and structured water and food that is nutrient rich and based and to break through, not destroy your traditional religious upbringings of whatever they are or your meditations that have helped you through whatever processes you've gone through recently, but in your exploration and questioning, because I think most of us, no matter what level of what we're trying, haven't all figured it out. You know, we'd all be in a different place if one of us had figured it out. So I think it's good to take where you're at and then apply these new techniques and break free, not destroy, but just don't try, attempt to relate them with new eyes and an open mind, not one where it's, well, I'm, I'm going to retain this judgment based on my, or the, or a shame, a built-in shame, whether it's been parental or through education. Uh, Cause education, by the way, uh, we're talking really, I'm talking religious institutions. Uh, these very public school systems are just as guilty, at least in America of creating ridiculous paradigms that have nothing to do with how you actually live, feed yourself um, or, you know, how you actually would relate to your own body and its health or discernment or creating critical thinkers versus just cheap. There, there's a lot of different ways that you can have a fog and a filter to not actually uh, give something a chance to reactivate your genetic memories that may include these abilities or abilities like synesthesia or others that you've dismissed as being a defect or a disability. And that's, it's not, and, and that's not even a term that uh, in the world it's of being differently enabled is even a thing anymore. But the truth is, is that how do we label some of these incredible abilities as disabilities? When the truth of the matter is, is that when we're all operating at 10 to 14% consciousness, and we are and have been disconnected from each other for so long, we have a lot of balls considering someone enabled or, or differently enabled. I mean, in a way. Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, I, it, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, and that just, you know, when, when we're operating this way, we just don't really have any right to judge. Yeah, no. Um, although as a side note, out of 15 years, what was your funnest class in college? Um, probably literature too. <laughs> All right. Which, what, what'd you cover? Um, well, I mean, the best thing that, that came out of that class is, uh, reading Oscar Wilde. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. For some reason I, I really, um, that that you know, reading uh, oh, what's that book? Picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, and, and it wasn't so much the story; it was the way he told the story. I mean, the story itself is like, eh, you know, all right. So the picture's getting old, and he's staying young, you know. 
but the way his, his writing style was just so far out there and it's like really like a, it's almost like this rich psychedelic type of writing that I really really enjoyed and I don't know it, it it was a challenge to read it but at the same time too I think sometimes like reading something difficult or, or that's kind of abstract or weird opens up helps open up part of the brain that, that sometimes we would other otherwise have access to yeah, it's totally true because I've talked to people even recently that didn't value fiction. And they're like, well, I want to re- read real things. And it's like, I don't think you understand that when they say something to the effect of the cliche, cliched statement of, well, you know, everything that's ever been sung or written has already been, you know, everything that's been thought of has already been thought of before. Well, it's probably pretty true if we were a much higher level of technology. And we do have genetic memory and we do have this... Uh, unconscious storage of vast amounts of human history and knowledge that we don't know how to consciously activate. And so the idea that it would be uh, a fictional story would have less value. Why are we drawn to Lord of the Rings? Why are Mm -hmm. we drawn to, why are we drawn to, on that note, why are we drawn to Led Zeppelin? Why are we drawn to the Beatles? And why are we drawn to even new music that, you know, currently that has, something completely beyond the words they're singing and any individual instrument uh, like Peter Gabriel, Salisbury uh-huh. Hill, what well, we could get into the geek out just like fandom of it, but then the higher functioning and playing and consciousness of it. It's yeah. well, I, I totally agree. Like I, I play music as well. Like I play guitar and, um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely listen to like, like lately I've been listening to this band called electric wizard and I mean, it's like really heavy doom type of music, but it also has like this, um, it, it drones a lot. It has like this under, this heavy bass droning of it. It's super hypnotic. And it, it, it almost puts me like in a meditative space, space, you know, like most people wouldn't think of like a heavy metal band putting somebody in that kind of state, but at least for me, it does. Yeah, and it's not just one kind of music, and I don't think we're just drawn to it for the sake of a distraction. I think it is a a combination of who you are as an individual, not just enjoying a particular flavor of music, but Mm -hmm. it's that where you are is also an anchor to this existence, not as in this material on-off, yes-no, dark light. It's not a simple association. I think these different... Uh, desires to listen to these different musics definitely are an attempt I think for that continued meditation for your body to uh, realign itself I don't know how else to describe it it would probably we could probably have a longer conversation yeah, just yeah, on but that. I, I, and I think that's true I think sometimes like our body knows what it needs and when it hears it that's what it's going to keep listening to yeah and and then it wants to continue that yeah, because it's like, reass- it's like okay I got I, there's that frequency that I've been looking for <laughs> yeah to hang out there yes and that's definitely a, a one part of a process that when you now again you back it up and you start combining it with um, a water 
and what you're eating and the meditation. Cause I've been able to do like, I practice Wim Hof and uh, I have found it very effective. I put a certain set of music on repeat. And so I do a combination. I choose to do the breathing technique, which can run 25 to 45 minutes, depending on the day. And then I immediately practice where you uh, submerge yourself either in like a, a bathtub or a, a shower of very, you know, like ice cold water, which mm-hmm. is easy to accomplish in Minnesota. We have pretty cold water year round, but let me tell you, it's extra good. Come, come 20 below zero this winter, mm-hmm. you know, feel free to, you know, hit the Northern States for that. You'll, you you do not have to worry about the water being accidentally 50 degrees, pretty much. <laughs> It should be frozen, but it's moving so fast it's not frozen. So I'm pretty sure at some points, cold water in Minnesota in winter is colder than freezing. It's pretty crazy. Hmm. It and but but that connection for me between the music and the cold and the breathing technique puts me into a state where I've experienced and other people, if you look into the technique, I've seen geometric shapes. And patterns, and I don't mean just like random, like I'm tripping and I'm unaware. I, I think I mentioned that it's like a switch. When you do this particular technique, it's more like, to me, it's more like you're tuning in to a very uh, material science uh, in the sense that uh, it's a full body awareness, not just like, uh, I feel good or I feel bad or I feel good. I mean, you feel good, but it's not like a a sensation like you're going over a roller coaster. It's more of a sensation of power, control in in an incredibly surreal way. Not like there's pulses and energies within your nervous system and you can feel it and -hmm. you can control it almost like a drumbeat, almost like you're in a band. And then the geometric patterns that I experience are also coming in the forms of uh, they're almost bright orange and honeycombed and, but they're very structured. And I, I don't know what else to tell you other than part of the breathing technique is you take deep breaths and then you do exhales. And when you do those exhales, you don't breathe. You sit as long as you are not forcing it and comfortable. And for me, that can be up to five minutes now. So I can do, these 35, 40 breaths. And then I do this exhale and then I don't breathe sometimes for up to five minutes. And uh, that's where I'm at with it. Now, Stieg Severinsen set a world record. This is the guy who does breathology, breathology breathology.com. He is also from the Netherlands. He has also broken some of Wim's records, but it's about cold weather and breathing as a life technique and uh, for also health and fitness and there's a i mean he's been looked at by bbc and cnn and and history channel and discovery channel and you know he's one of the superhumans on earth but stig uh stig um he uh is the guy that you can see the time lapse video on youtube of sitting in a meditative state he get he gets into the same meditative state uh using pure oxygen he takes a breath and with a uh, Guinness Book of World Record observers sits in a pool that is basically uh, freezing water for 22 minutes on one breath floating. And I know people, some people might be aware of a magician named David Blaine who practically mm-hmm. killed himself doing it to 17 minutes. Right. But he, he did it quite uncomfortably 
you're not doing it when you're doing breathology and I, and I don't do breathology only. I, so I, I'm just saying that because I don't want to tell anyone. I think from what I've seen, it is as valuable as a technique. I just happened in my life to end up at Wim Hof's very first American stop ever a couple years ago on Treasure Island in San Francisco. And I got to learn from Wim and I just happened to start the Wim Hof technique first. I don't know if anyone's better than the other, but I just know Wim Hof, what it does for me. And I can tell you that when you do this technique, the purpose isn't to just sit on one breath. It's about, there are studies that say after 45 minutes, there is just like a swimming pool, there's alkalining the body, your pH balance. There are things that chemically change as you do the breathing technique. And you're not just sitting there. I want to explain this a little bit further in that you are not sitting in a state of consciousness where when you go into like a yoga meditation where they're telling you to think about your problems and visualize, there is literally, I'm not a very patient person when it comes to this. Like I, like, and I'm very creative and I'm very, and I like Lord of the Rings, but I could never understand the value of, it was so abstract. I didn't get it. It doesn't work for me. And if it works for you, great. But Wim Hof, this technique is not something that you do and you don't know what you're thinking. You are, when I said a light switch goes on, I'm saying when you start breathing, you start doing this technique, there are so many things happening between your brain and your body. You are not thinking randomly. You are not distracted, whether you're using a music for that part of that brain entrainment, but I'm telling you, you are physically engaged consciously and unconsciously, and it's super crazy. And when I'm exhaling and I'm reaching those different techniques where sometimes I'm going five minutes and not breathing. It's not to prove a point. It's developing this consciousness and this alkalining and this pH balance and this, and no matter what, this conscious control medically proven of my inflammatory response. And it's very fun. It is not uh, my gosh, I have to go to meditation tonight. I don't want to, you know, this is a, it's a very crazy, cool, fun thing to try for everyone out there. And it then spills over in how you are about your day, how you are about that intent towards your food, that food prep, that love, that recognition, that the very molecules and DNA right down to like being angry with a plant, which you should not be angry at any plant, but there are so many uh, sciences that have proven these effects, whether it's on an animal or uh, a plant or now water and the various states of water. And so that's just my personal experience, but it all ties back simply to your consciousness right now and where it's at is where you are. And there are many techniques out there to just start to shift always in an upward, I think, and in an incredibly rewarding way, your experience of, of living with yourself and others. Yeah, there's just tons and tons of stuff out there to experience and to try. I mean, just like, like what you're doing, there's things like Kundalini Yoga, um, I know, uh, Tai Chi, um, meditation, ceremonial magic, all kinds of stuff. Uh, sacred geometry. Um, and, and I think like all these different techniques sort of start to activate 
different parts of our consciousness that are asleep. I don't think that's why I don't kind of abide by one method. I think all these ancient techniques activate probably something different. Yeah. And it's just such a huge topic and I hope we can, uh, I hope we can, uh, I guess maybe keep this as a side topic. We could get a little more into, uh, like I said, you know, I touched on aeroponics and, uh, there, it's pretty crazy. There's a, there are some low tech aeroponics that people are using. What's important about aeroponics? Again, it was developed by NASA in the '70s, and it's not. Uh, some people might be thinking hydroponics, or, or they're giggling, or they're thinking it's about pot. Mm-hmm. The aer- aeroponics is about uh, atomizing water down to 30 to 50 microns, and delivering the perfect size water particle with exactly the right amount of nutrients to a plant that's growing without soil so that 24 hours a day through a computer system or some simple aeroponic timing systems, Mm -hmm. you can deliver on a four by four sheet, maybe up to 400 plants. Uh, You can grow the most nutrient dense plants you could ever want rather than a soil grown plant that may have only been exposed to 16 nutrients you could actually use liquid fertilizers within a pool of water that is then atomized. But that's just, it's a huge topic and it's just Mm -hmm. one way of growing. And, you know, we, we should touch on the different ways that people can help activate their consciousness. Yeah. That's going to have to be the next episode. Oh, that'd be fun. Sounds great. Um, So where can my listeners find you? I have a website, www.notaliens.com. Uh, you can buy a signed copy of my book there. I sign every copy and get them out to everybody individually. They're not pre-signed, uh, actual signed copy of my book. All my podcasts like this one will be listed with links to your site and others on the main page. And if, if I do have upcoming events, they will be listed there. I do a web page or I have a not aliens on YouTube. And of course, if you just want to buy the book and spend a few dollars less, absolutely go to Amazon. You can get my book. It's not aliens worse. It's us discovering our lost history and you can definitely get it there. Uh, last weekend I was on the fringe fest and on uh, Richard Hoagland's Sunday night show, which you can listen to. And I was on freeman.tv Saturday night. So if you're looking for a Halloween special and <laughs> up and coming, you can find me this uh, next week. I'll be on conflict radio on Sunday and next week. I think, uh, Oh, the, uh, forbidden archeology. span I'll be uh, forbidden knowledge. I'll be coming up on, I think on Monday. So that's it for now. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Uh, yeah, it was great coming back. Thank you for having me and everyone listening. And hang on one second after we uh, stop recording. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, 
I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.